Hello, everyone. My name is Justin. I'm a philosopher at UMass. And uh, today, uh, the scripture reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 27, which is just the entire chapter. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, 
but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this church. Um, Thank you for for Jake, who's going to come up and preach. I pray that you will speak to us through him about our rights and when we should use them and when we shouldn't, and about the gospel. And I pray that you will also speak through the teachers um, downstairs with the kids. And and I pray uh, for our nation and for the state of Massachusetts and for everyone in the Pioneer Valley. Lord, I just pray that you will... um, you will work powerfully in, in this place and spread the gospel. Um, amen. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Jake. I'd like to invite kids in grades one to two to come up this direction, and grades three through five, you're going to head out that way with your teachers. Take a minute here. So most of you are probably familiar with uh, the shot from the movie The Shawshank Redemption. Right? This is this picture of the character of Andy Dufresne. He's kneeling in a thunderstorm. His arms are outstretched. His face is turned upward toward the rain, having just crawled through a sewer out of the prison to his freedom. It's a picture of a man wrongfully accused, imprisoned for decades. His freedoms, his rights, and his dignity had been stripped away. But in that moment, he's been washed clean of his bondage. And he's been reborn in his liberty. It's a powerful image. It's an enduring one. It might be even a bit cliche at this point for me to use this as an example. It's a bit basic for me to use it as an illustration. It might be on your sermon bingo card, perhaps. But it's it's an image that that I think it really endures and it resonates. But it also misses a key theme in the movie. And this is the theme that the freedom, though desired, it's often daunting and even frightening once you have it. Once you have it, it's hard sometimes to know what to do with it. I mean, I think some of you in this room maybe have experienced some newfound freedom. You know, maybe it's your first year at college. No parents. Awesome. Freedom. Or maybe you just got your first job, and you're looking forward to some financial freedom. That's exciting, right? Maybe you're getting married, or maybe you just got tenure. Maybe your youngest just left for college. Maybe he just retired. Well, congratulations. You did it. You're free, in a sense, right? You have some newfound freedom. But now what? I think each 
of these situations provide a glimpse of what joy freedom can bring, but they can also highlight that freedom in and of itself does not lead to joy or fulfillment. It certainly doesn't give you any clue as to how you ought to live. There are lots of things that we are free to do that it's just not a good idea to do it, right? As a college student, you're free to stay up as late as you want. There's no parent that will make sure your lights are out at a particular time, right? But, hear me, it's probably not wise for you to stay up till 3 a.m. every night, right? When you get your first paycheck, you're going to be free to blow it on a TV and a gaming system, right? You can do that. You're free to, but it's probably not the best idea. Brothers and sisters, for those of you that claim Christ's name, you've been freed. You're free. And for those of you who don't know Christ, I want you to listen in here. Christ has died once for all to save you from sin, to restore you in all of creation, to grant you a newfound freedom from sin and from ceremonial law. You're free to pursue good things within the bounds of scriptural morality, to enjoy the good gifts from God. This is a freedom of those that know that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Yes, we have moral responsibilities. Yes, we are called and commanded to obey the word of God. But when we mess up, if we repent and trust in Jesus, our failures will not separate us from God. That's freedom. It's a freedom to walk in the way of truth boldly, not as those who are scared to mess up, but as those who are secure in the grip their Savior has on them, secure in the fact that He is coming back and will restore all things, His kingdom come. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But I don't want to minimize the effects of our actions. Paul's not doing that here in this text. Even when we exercise legitimate rights, things that we are allowed to do, when we act in ways that are not explicitly sinful, they can reflect a lack of care for others, and by extension, a care for Christ and his body. This was the theme last Palm Sunday, two weeks ago, and it continues today that the exercise of our freedom is something we need to do with care. In that sermon, we heard from Alden that, uh, that when we saw the Corinthians, that they were free to eat anything, but it was better for them to refrain from eating certain things in order to ca- not cause others to stumble, to preserve the bonds of their fellowship, to protect the conscience of the weak in their midst, and to pave a way toward righteousness for those around them. So now Paul is going to refocus on himself as an example in this text. And he's going to do the following to reframe how the Corinthians view their rights. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to establish and claim the legitimate right of those who devote their lives to preaching and teaching the gospel to be financially supported. All right, so he's going to, he's going to establish the right to be financially supported in his ministry of teaching the gospel. But he's then going to relinquish that right as an example of how to deny your own rights for the sake 
of that gospel. And then he's going to call the Corinthians to follow his example and to see that all of Christian life should be oriented around denying ourselves. Sinful desires, yes, but even good things, things that we have a right to do for the sake of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom. And so he begins this chapter and he says, am I not free? I think this is rhetorical. Of course he's free. Paul is a Roman citizen. He's traveled far and wide in a time when that really wasn't that common. He was educated. He spoke freely in public places about the gospel. So by any reasonable definition at the time, he was free. So he asks rhetorically, am I not free? But then he goes on and says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So there's a sense in which Paul's stating the obvious, but he's also establishing some credentials. I think it is likely at this time that he was unanimously recognized as an apostle by those in Corinth. He planted the church, and as such, they were proof of his apostleship, as we see in the second part of verse 1 and verse 2. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And although there is some factionalism in Corinth, as we've seen, where some indicate preferences for other teachers, his words still mattered greatly since he planted the church. Furthermore, his defense can always rest on the account of his miraculous conversion, of like actually seeing Christ on the road to Damascus, when he says, have I not seen the Lord, right? It's kind of an ace in the hole for Paul, right? It's not the last time he's going to bring it up, too. So, when he says in verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me, it's not a defense of his apostleship, but on, how, on his view of how rights should be, uh, should be handled. Again, he's telling the Corinthians to deny their rights for the sake of their fellow Christians, and he's going to defend that view by giving himself as an example. He starts by claiming the rights of apostles in verses 4 to 6. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's how I'm going to pronounce it. Or is it only Barnabas and I who ever have no right to refrain from working for a living? Again, he's claiming this, he's using this word right, it's the same right that Christians had to, uh, to eat food offered to idols. I think it's best to think about each of these questions as referring to a central theme, a single point that's summarized in that last question. It would be ridiculous to expect them to do their ministry without material sustenance, without food and drink, right? Of course they have to eat. Of course they have uh, to obtain uh, fuel, right, to do their work. And there's no reason here or in Scripture that those who are devoted to this kind of ministry can't have a family, right? This is leaning against the idea that Paul is requiring uh, leadership to be celibate uh, in, in earlier in chapter 7. And I think it's a pretty strong argument. Why would we deprive them of what they need to live and the ability to bring along a wife, in this case, in their ministry, but the point is ultimately summarized that since they are providing the word through their ministry, they ought to be, be compensated so that they can eat, so that they can drink, and so that they can support a family. 
And this is emphasized in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Right? This is common sense in some respect. In each of these, those doing the work would expect to receive some kind of compensation. For the soldier from those he is protecting via taxes or some kind of other system of provision. For the vineyard keeper, he should get fruit from the vines that he's caring for. And from the shepherd, he gets milk from the flock itself. So he's drawing on earthly wisdom, in a sense, but it's more than that. It's also a scriptural principle he's going to draw on. In verses 8 through 11, we read, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul is using here, by the way, an allegorical kind of interpretation. It's not completely separated from the context of the verse. It's absolutely true that an ox should not be muzzled. A literal ox should not be muzzled as it treads out the grain, right? It's working hard. It's expending energy. You're obtaining a benefit from it. You should reward it. Let it eat some of the grain, right? It's right to do that for an ox, but the argument is from lesser to greater, if that's true for an ox, how much more so for a human, especially one engaged in ministering the word to you? That's a small plug, I think, for reading texts on multiple levels, right? We're not separating it from the historical uh, setting, but it's not the only way that Scripture reads Scripture. I want to skip verse 12 here for a second, and I'm going to come back to it, but it this, is, this idea is further fleshed out um, in a more direct verse that discusses providing for priests and ministers of the word in verses 13 to 14. We read, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those serve, that serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So this is, again, referring to, uh, to the Pentateuch, right? And while the Mosaic covenant rituals of the temple, they're no longer required for Christians, these scriptures were still a reference point for thinking about ethics. In this case, the norm of Levites and priests eating from the food offered was a way to provide for them materially while they carried out the duty of worshiping, of atoning for sin through sacrifice, and of generally serving the Lord. This was good then, and Paul affirms it is good now. And further, he's going to turn to the teaching of Jesus himself. When he says the Lord, he's referring to Jesus, specifically in Luke 10, uh, 7, chapter 10, verse 7, where he says, as he sends out his disciples to preach, he's commanding them to carry nothing with them, no money, no food. And he says, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Eat what is set before you. So there's a right that's established here for those who labor and serving and teaching to reap a benefit from it. And that's in the Old Testament and it's in the gospel too. 
It's in the teaching of Jesus. So given these rights, it's expected that the Corinthians would have or would continue to support Paul financially in his ministry. That would be good. But that's not what we see here. In verse 12, we read Paul says, if others share this rightful claim on you, that's the claim for financial compensation, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. This is the point that Paul's driving at here. He's saying, I have every right in the world to ask for payment, but I'm not doing it. Why? In order to remove any obstacle for your salvation. To avoid the whiff of impropriety or the sense that maybe gospel ministry is some kind of payday for Paul and Barnabas, they choose to work day jobs, right? Just like the Corinthians should refrain from eating food offered to idols to avoid violating the conscience of the weak, he is refusing payment so that he avoids even the the hint of greed. This is pretty extreme. He's made the case here and elsewhere. He's like appealing to the words of Jesus Christ himself that it is okay to get paid as an apostle. But his concern is so strong for those that might get tripped up on this issue that he's willing to endure the hardship of having to provide for himself. But I think we can say more about his motivation here. We read further in verses 15 to 18 but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Basically, not trying to use reverse psychology here, right? Not trying to get paid in a backhanded way, right? He goes on to say, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I, would have, I, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. What's Paul saying here? Well, Paul is saying in a sense he is compelled to preach. No matter what. No matter whether he is paid or not, it's like a compulsion. It's like a compulsion of joy, right? My parents were in town this past weekend, and like my dad is one of these people that like if there's any dishes anywhere, he's going to try and, and wash them. He's going to do the dishes no matter what. It's a compulsion for him. He just has to do them, right? Even when we don't want him to. Stop doing dishes. Still doing the dishes. That's Paul preaching the gospel here. He can't help it. From the time the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he doesn't have a choice. He hasn't had a choice. He can't stop. He won't stop. It's not something he can boast in. It is literally something he is compelled to do. His gift, it's that of evangelism. His joy was preaching and teaching. He had a pretty unique calling And he feels like he really isn't actually giving anything of himself if he is preaching, right? No more than you would feel you were giving of yourself if you're doing your hobby, right? Does anybody, like, compulsively sing in the shower? Anybody here? Anybody a shower singer? Suppose, like, you know, I'm singing in the shower, 
do that sometimes. My wife came in and said, wow, that's beautiful, Jake. Really enjoy hearing you sing. And then I was like, well, then pay me. Like, right? That's basically what Paul's saying. He preaches and teaches reflexively, so much so that by doing so, it doesn't really feel like he's sacrificing or giving anything. So he feels that an appropriate stewardship of that gift is to do so without pay. The way he stewards his gift is by denying his right associated with that gift. Again, I think this is a pretty unique situation in some ways, but I think we can learn from it as we steward our own gifts. Look, I'm not trying to, like, toot my own horn here, but it is what I'm doing right now. Like, when the offering bas- basket goes around a little bit later on, you know, I don't, I don't get a cut of that, right? That's not a tip jar, right? As a lay elder, I don't get paid for this. Now, I don't think I'm in, like, the same sacrificial ballpark as Paul, like, who, again, also had, like, Jesus literally appeared to him, so, you know, he had that going for him. But I do think it's like a good thing about us having lay elders. It models stewarding gifts without demanding temporal reward. But I think an important point of application here is that, broadly speaking, he's still, he's still asserting this right. Like, we should provide materially for those who have dedicated their lives to ministry. In particular, the preaching and teaching of the word. I mean, this is not the only place where Paul makes this claim. He asks in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. He's referencing the same two texts, one from the Pentateuch and one from the gospel. He's making the same point, right? So I don't think that this is a command that all elders or all who minister must be paid, right? But it suggests that the teaching of the Word of God, the preaching of the Bible, it's so important that we should be willing to pay those who serve well and labor in teaching and preaching. Not because they're so special or more valuable, but because we As a people, as a church, we value the preaching of the word so highly that we're literally willing to pay for it. I think this is a clear justification, by the way, for having a vocational pastor, one who's dedicated to the task of serving the congregation through preaching and teaching. I think, you know, Paul is at least strongly suggesting in his writing that it's a good idea for the Corinthians as they move forward. It's not a requirement to have a church, right? It doesn't... It doesn't seem like, it, like, having a paid pastor is not what constitutes a church, right? Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he's saying, you are a church. They don't seem to have a vocational pastor. But it definitely seems to be a prudential recommendation, and maybe even a duty for the church. And yet Paul's decision, his choice to steward his gift in this particular manner, it does complicate things a bit, right? It suggests that ministers can sacrifice or forego their rightful or fair compensation to ensure the word is preached. That's a really incredible sacrifice, but it makes it difficult 
It makes it hard to apply like pure market principles to church salaries, much as I love those. On the one hand, we are to provide fair compensation to those dedicated to ministry. Paul's claiming that. Even to provide for a family. But some choose to forego that, at least to some extent and in some circumstances. Like, by the way, we know Paul accepted gifts and support in other circumstances. So, as we try to think about what the principle here is, I think the principle that's relevant as we move through, say, things like staffing changes, as we go into budget season, as a church body, we should endeavor to support our paid ministers and staff adequately and fairly, according to the benefit that we receive from them, such that they can live a full life and support themselves, and yes, even a family. That's what we see here. That should, at the very least, be our goal. We need to give and budget accordingly. However, though we strive for this goal, it may be the case that through some combination of congregational need and the ministerial gifts or the ability to sacrifice uh, of a particular uh, preacher that what is owed is not what's paid. Maybe that's for a season. But we should never grow complacent and expect ministers to sacrifice in this way. We can be okay when someone elects to forego their right in this manner. We can accept that gift and honor it, but we should not assume it. This isn't easy. It's not a simple rule. And it's frankly a, a bit messy. I think that if we strive to provide for our pastors and staff, though, not assuming, but being open to generosity on their part, then we can move forward faithfully in our financial care for staff and pastors. The second point of application I want to make here is that we all have gifts. Brothers and sisters, we all have ways to serve. But the way Paul chose to model serving was not by displaying his gifts and all of their brilliance and reaping the appropriate rewards, as was his right, but to deny his rights in order that more might come to know Christ. Do you see how radical this is? Do you see how it turns the discussion of freedom on its head? How it turns the discussion of gift stewardship on its head? Going beyond how has God called me to serve and participate in this church to how can I deny myself in serving the church? What Paul gives to the church is not his preaching. It's not his mind, his teaching ability. God has ordained that. Paul has no choice, he says, in the matter. Paul's gift to the church then, his sacrifice, is that he does so without insisting on what is owed to him. As you steward your gifts, brothers and sisters, and the role that you have been called to, I want you to know we ought to value your contributions. We should celebrate the contributions of those in the church. Inevitably, though, we know that sometimes we aren't given our due. We don't always behave the way we should toward each other. 
How do we respond? Maybe a helpful analogy here is to think about what is owed to parents. All right, so for anyone here who is a parent, you've been called to that role, right? You have responsibilities. You may even feel compelled to raise your kids. Woe to me if I don't raise my kids, right? And supposedly, in return, your kids are commanded to honor you, right? That's one of the big ones, as I remember, right? Anyone who has actually parented, though, knows that it doesn't always feel that way. Parenting can be a thankless job. Mother's Day's coming up. It's a whole day where we thank moms. We're so bad at honoring moms that we had to put a reminder on the calendar. Oh, you know what? We should probably thank them for doing all of this, right? Is that their due? I think we should parent our children in ways that lead them to obedience. We should teach them to honor us, not because we are so worthy, but because that's what the Word of God says. But the fact of the matter is, you are probably going to feel shortchanged as a parent, even disrespected. Or perhaps in this example, you can see our motivation as parents, our desire is not to get what's rightfully ours, to demand honor, but to lovingly draw our children into a light of a life of light and truth. If we gain our children for Christ, we will endure periods of time where we feel a bit dishonored. And so here now is Paul's central point and talking of rights and freedoms and what's owed that though he is free in Christ and able to take advantage of those freedoms, those freedoms themselves are not the point. They're not the goal. We read in verse 19 to 23, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel." Paul's turning to a broader principle here. It applies within the church, relationships among believers, but it also is maybe even turning to an outward posture of the church, maybe even primarily about how we relate to the outside world. He's fleshing out the Great Commission here. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How do we go about doing that, Jesus? Well, Paul's providing a crucial strategy here, a blueprint that's reflective of this broader principle that he's, at, that he's, that he's after here. When you are free to act, use that freedom in ways that will best win people to Christ. If that means abiding by customs that you think are unnecessary, so long as those customs don't cause you to sin, then hold to the customs. 
For Paul, that meant holding to the ceremonial laws and regulations that no longer bound him under Christ, but that some of his Jewish brothers and sisters still thought were wise to follow. Likewise, among those who found, would find like, the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament to be a bit odd and unhelpful in their understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, he didn't practice those laws. He ate what was given to him, disregarding dietary restrictions, for example, so long as he did not sin according to the law of Christ. That, that is the moral law that was upheld in the New Testament. He was free to partake. And in all of this, his goal was to defend the gospel and advance the kingdom, fulfilling the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave it to him, or who gave it to us before he ascended. So Paul's not just some kind of bohemian tourist here, sampling the local customs and food, right? He's not like some first century Anthony Bourdain or Rick Steves, right? This was intentional, and it informed their whole lives. So concerned, by the way, that Paul and Timothy were about their testimony among Jewish audiences, that Paul had Timothy, a Gentile, he had him circumcised. Like, this is Paul. This is Mr. You don't need to get circumcised to be in Christ. Like, that's his whole thing in large portions of his letters, right? He had his disciple Timothy circumcised. Why? so that Timothy's lack of circumcision wouldn't be a hindrance to other Jews, so that Timothy, too, could be all things to all people. Paul determined within himself to pose no barriers in the way he behaved that might impede some from approaching the gospel. Sure, some might reject the gospel on its own terms, but he was determined not to be a stumbling block before they got there. I think there's no better example of this in Paul's own life than when he and Silas sat in the jail at Philippi. We read about this in Acts 16. They were imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and God miraculously broke them out. An earthquake opened the doors. They had been wrongfully accused and imprisoned. And like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, they could have stumbled out of the cell into the clean air of freedom, and they could have hit the road. And they would have been totally justified in doing so. Same kind of thing happened to Peter, by the way, and Peter left, right? They didn't deserve to be there. It was unjust. It wasn't right. The jailer, when he woke up, realized the doors were open, he assumed that's what they did, that he assumed the worst, right? The prisoners had grasped their freedom with both hands and took it. He assumed that he would be killed, just like the guards who had kept Peter were, and he figured he would go ahead and do the job himself. But then we are told that, in fact, Paul and Silas had not grasped their freedom, they had not asserted their right to walk free, a right literally and miraculously granted to them by God. Paul spoke up and said, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Why? Why would they do that? Because of what happened next. We read, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he was baptized that night. 
and this whole family was saved. I mean, it's not always so immediate, but when we commit to denying ourselves for the good of our brothers and sisters and for the sake of seeing Christ's glory and gospel proclaimed, God moves, and new people get to share in the blessings of the gospel. Hallelujah. But even this, even the satisfaction of seeing those one to Christ, that's not it. That's not the ultimate hope. The ultimate goal we read, it's not achieved in this lifetime. Paul ends this discussion by giving the example of an athlete. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we have an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul continues to preach, to teach, to exhort, to write, to evangelize not as someone who's looking to occupy time. That's not a hobby. That's not even a living for him, right? It's a calling and a lifelong pursuit, the ultimate reward for which he will not receive in his lifetime. But rather than some kind of leaf hat or grass crown that an athlete would receive, he will be crowned as one who reigns under King Jesus forevermore. It's an imperishable crown. So as we serve in the church, as we elders are preaching the word, we're not doing it to sound clever, to turn a nice phrase, earn some praise for you, from you for our wisdom. Lois, our church administrator, did not faithfully serve this church behind the scenes for 20 years so that she could get a payday or even to be respected and admired, although she was. Our staff do not labor so that they can feel really important. When you serve in kids' church, it's not to feel loved by all the children, right? or even to feel useful and helpful. When you help with AV, or you help set up on Sunday, or lead a Bible study, or tend the lawn, or help with the building, or the finances, it's not because of what it gets you in this lifetime. When you disciple and care for and discipline your children, it's not for the here and now. The purpose is twofold. You run to obtain the prize. So that on the last day, when you stand before God, you will say, all I have is Christ. And look what he did through me. And God will say, well done now, good and faithful servant. And grant you the crown of glory as you are ushered into the eternal joy of his rule. A rule you get to share in. And second, you do it so that others may join in the blessings of the kingdom with you for the sake of the gospel. So Paul is determined to dis discipline himself in this regard, to deny himself the things he is owed so that more may join in that kingdom. He does not impulsively act out his freedoms, but he restrains them for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. 
There's no greater example of one who denied their rights than that of the Lord Jesus who spoke on the night when he was betrayed and he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink, of, drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, drink, you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we take the Lord's Supper in a minute, let's reflect on the sacrificial denial Christ exemplifies on the cross and pray for grace to do the same for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are just, and to you we owe everything. Our very existence is derived from you, upholding us in every moment. We confess we are so wrapped up sometimes in what is and is not fair for us, and what we think we deserve, that we forget that we are owed nothing. But thanks be to you, Father, that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came and was united to flesh, to humanity. He took on our nature, lived a perfect life, and died an undeserved death, giving up his liberty and dignity unto death on our behalf. We thank you by this sacrifice, your justice was satisfied. Jesus, you rose again that we might too experience resurrection. You reign seated at the right hand of the Father, and we pray that your kingdom would come and come soon. We who deserve death, who are slaves to sin, have been called to the freedom of those who are now no longer condemned. We pray for those among us who are wrestling with the truths of your gospel, that your spirit would come upon them now, that, they, that it would draw them to you, those in this room, those downstairs in our kids' classrooms, Usher them, O oh Lord, into the bonds of unity in your church as we, the church, experience liberty together, treating each other with the grace that you have shown us. Amen.